0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is chapter one, which is called The Purpose of Business. And this is from the book, Invaluable, Achieving Clarity on Value. So the first part that we're going to focus on is, of course, the beginning of the chapter, a little bit of uh, poetry before every chapter that begins. So under the purpose of business in chapter one, it says service was hard work. They said, enjoy the result. Meanwhile, hard work showed up as joy and service was the result. And, uh, I, I, one of the things that definitely stood out to me when I, when I was reading this is joy was definitely the, you could say the link <laughs> in the two sentences. Basically, it's like it, do, it doesn't matter if we're talking about hard work or service, It seems to, there seems to be some kind of joy component to it. Um, and perhaps that's why we're getting into a section called Business is Service. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about this whole concept of business is service and why you decided to begin your first chapter? Uh, with that concept,
1: that's a really good question. So when when I was at Stanford in ma- in the Department of Management Science and Engineering, I would attend a bunch of business classes, you know, in the business school as well as in the School of Management, and no one ever defined for me what the purpose of business was. So that's kind of interesting. And yet all, uh, all of us graduating seem to be in this environment where the purpose was implied to be profit or shareholder value creation. And yet no one explicitly defines such an important goal. Like, hey, if you're gonna spend your life in a business, you better be clear, what, what, why are you doing this? What is the purpose? And, and that's, uh, that I feel is the foundation. If we are not clear about the foundation, everything, all the metrics we use flow from that purpose. So it is astonishing to me that we don't have an explicit reflection on what that purpose is because then, then you cannot talk about validity. Validity only comes when you have clarity of purpose. So that, that was the main reason why I wanted to reflect on at least somebody I knew in my life who thought about it, what was the purpose of business, and I wanted to start there.
0: Huh. That's very interesting. Um, not to fall down a little rabbit hole here, but its it, it, I find it fascinating how corporations can be deemed um, uh, entities uh, according to an act, I I don't remember the name of the act, but it can be deemed entities almost like they're persons and of themselves, but we don't try to look at a business the same way we might like approach a relationship for person you could say. So like, for example, uh, it would be very funny if we were taught when we try to find love or something like that, that it's like, okay, they, they, they must, have this certain character trait or they they must be pretty and that's it that's that's all that matters nothing else matters and it's like what what? because i mean that's the equivalent of what it seems like with people with business oh all that matters is the money nothing else matters it's just the money but yet you find that people go into these quote-unquote relationships with business and they're not happy and it would be kind of similar if we all went around and just like all that matters is the physical looks of a person and nothing else, you'd find a lot less happiness. I find that interesting. So the business of service begins with a story, and I don't I don't want to read uh, the entire story, but but um, basically it gets into um, how. A monk is <laughs> giving a speech. Um, basically, you say, I was a high school senior at the time, and my father had sold me into attending a monk's talk by saying, there is this octogenarian monk I know who is going to give a talk on business. He never repeats himself. You also won't, won't forget what he says. Um, I also found it very funny how a monk was giving a talk on business because you typically have this certain view of monks uh what I'm curious to know what it, when your father brought this up were you very skeptical
1: no so growing up in india it it's you have to understand that the cultural immersion component is pretty strong it's uh, it's just natural that you would go for life advice to monks because these are people who for thousands of years have trained their mind to be still, to see through distortions and to come up with a lot of wisdom. And so the social context, and, and it's not just India, you'll see this in, in East Asia as well, in China and so on, You know, Cambodia, uh, Vietnam. This, there's a whole cultural, uh, let's just say cultural strength, cultural muscle into understanding that society needs people who have decided to train their mind in very specific ways so that they can come back and and guide society so there's a lot of uh, trust in in the wisdom that comes from stilling the mind and and so it didn't even occur to me at that time that hey this is odd A <laughs> monk talking about business it it just was like no this is a person who has wisdom and uh, my dad was inspired when i guess in his younger days when he had met this monk and so he felt hey i should also go listen and see what i can take from it hmm. and uh, and that was it It's just he just made sense and and these monks are highly rational like you know they 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 completely follow logic and so it's easy it's really easy to keep up and 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 they, and, and they're also inspiring it's like logic is not dry it can be made dry but this these monks uh, the ones i have been associated with They had a sense of humor they had inspiration so that message stuck it was so simple it was so clear and it was spoken so uh, fluently that i never forgot it and so i operated with this principle where where he said business is service uh, you all along and it, it was only much later when i realized that people had implicit assumptions of business that contradicted this and then, I, and then I started thinking about it and then realized, wait, there's a whole juicy world in here to be explored. So, yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah, because, I mean, he's, he said that business is service. You serve others. Uh, this would be the top of page 50. Uh, you serve others, and in return for that service, people compensate you out of gratitude. Don't worry about compensation focus instead on being of service. For if people are truly served, your compensation is bound to come. Which, ooh, if, <laughs> I'm sure, um, you know, there are some uh, American businessmen uh, that, that hear that and they're like, whoa, <laughs> um, don't worry about compensation, focus instead on being of service. Um, how, how do you think that translate to American sensibilities.
1: <laughs> I think Americans, I think American sensibilities are, uh, criticized, a, a lot more than they should be. Let me put it that way. I, I have uh. met many people who on the face of it will say, oh, we are just after money. But when you talk to them, you find, no, they're not after money. The decisions they have taken show that they're actually deep human beings who have values. And they constantly make decisions with their values. And in fact, I would argue that the intellectual apparatus that we've been given is not up to par. It, it's not up to par to who we truly are. And that's not our fault. That's the fault of the intellectual constructs surrounding us. But people are inspiring. So I would say that uh, they, you know, a lot of American businessmen, they operate like this. They 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 will tell you that, hey, if you don't treat people well, you know, if you hurt your customer, it's not good for business. It just, you know, this, this is not even controversial, right? But if you're kind to your customer, if you're taking care of them, we are very social creatures. We take care of each other. And, and even if you take the kindness component out, if you just keep your head on, right, It's just smart business. Like you know, if you if you are not taking care of others, why would they take care of you? And if you are taking care of others, you would hope you're surrounded by smart people because then taking care of you is in their best interest. And if they're not taking care of you while you're taking care of them, you're not surrounded by smart people. You shouldn't be there. (laughs) It's just that simple. Then if you're really taking care of others and you find you're struggling, then something is wrong. Either you're really not serving them or you're not surrounded by people who understand what is good for them.
0: And I think that kind of goes back to uh, even in the previous uh, chapter zero, when it talks about listening um, and really trying to understand who you're speaking with and trying to glean something from them. Um, On page 51, it says a new term has entered the lexicon servant leader which refers to a person who thinks about others before thinking about the self. Um, I, I, it seems that there are a lot of extremes that people think about when they think of business, they'll think of, you know, I'm starting a business. Um, I'm kind of thinking of the end result where I want it to be kind of like a, like a Walmart or something, you know, or, or, you know, something that's huge. When someone might perfectly find a great living with uh, great service, just being a department store, maybe like a local department store. It doesn't always have to be this huge corporation that's everywhere. Um, which brings me to the bottom of uh, 50. So when it comes to business is service, a means or an end, if we were to think of it as a means and the end is profit, Then the business world and business schools have much to offer on the link between the two. But what if Swami R meant that service was the end and profit and everything else in business was a means to being able to serve? How does that reorientation feel? Does the distinction between means and ends even matter? Uh, what would what would your advice be for someone starting out with a business? I mean, I, I know that you would probably be like, okay, well, it's about service, but what if someone was like, you know, I, 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 I want to be huge one day. I want to be like the next Amazon. What would your advice to them be? Well, think
1: very hard. Can you feel that being huge? And flip it around. What if it was, I want to bring something very special into the universe that will make people smile, that will really serve people in miraculous ways. Can you feel that? Which one is stronger? And and, and be very real about this, that these ideas of success, which are connected to copying somebody else's success, right? Being huge, being famous, being rich, these are not things that you can easily feel, even if you think about it today, like, oh, it'll be wonderful, it's like really? Okay, If you think that'll be wonderful, compare it to the last time you built something, built something and and for somebody else, or served somebody in ways that were profound. You, you know, have you had that experience and what was that? How did that feel? and And some people have had it early in life, and some people it takes a little while for them to connect with that. But I have found as I've grown older that this idea of scale, this idea of huge success and all of that, these are very um, intangible. Intangible in the sense you can't actually connect with it, even when you're there. So go go talk to the people who you believe have achieved that kind of scale and are highly successful and ask them, are you on cloud nine? Do you feel like you've achieved it? And you will find that they have their own struggles. They, they don't really see that as as something that's the core of their existence in, in fact if you know the people who i respect as highly successful i find them as highly passionate about something they're creating out of love out of joy and it just so happens that the market has rewarded them but they almost immediately take that reward and put it into their next goal of service the next thing that they want to give back and that's a wonderful way of being you know, you know it's not they're they're hoarding they see themselves as trustees of the wealth that has come their way and they you know the the people i respect they see it as flow that it it's just we're just temporarily here we see some resources we see we've been given some power how do we make it go to the place where it's needed the most and they have that kind of an attitude that's that's very inspiring to me so i I would encourage young people listening to this go talk to people who you think are successful and ask them and test your assumptions ask them what truly motivates them and find out how many of those highly successful people are actually motivated by their bank balance find out and and then then make your goals but don't make your goals before you've talked to people
0: Oh, oh, that's really good. That's really good. Um, Especially since it it kind of gets into our next session, uh, our next section, when it's talking about counting dental health. Uh, This is fascinating to me because it talks about how, you know, we're taught like, oh, you know, brush twice a day and everything. And there's this assumption that, okay, so say one person is brushing twice a day and They have great dental health, but then a different person who might have, you know, they might have cavities or whatever. And they're like, but I also brush twice a day. So I don't understand. Like, I don't understand what is going on. People are thinking of just one way. They're just thinking of one way of thinking instead of understanding the entire situation. So instead of assuming that, okay, well, I, I, I brush twice a day, surely I should have the same dental health as this person. Perhaps if they actually talked to the other person, they might be like, well, I ensure that it's not just twice a day. I brush for three minutes. I make sure to cover my entire mouth. I uh, use this certain toothpaste. I um, uh, This is what I eat. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of information that can be gathered of why one person might be doing better than the other. And it kind of goes to the example you just gave with business. You actually have to go to the people that have achieved these things and ask them, what did they actually do? It, it might not be something as simple as uh, profit, um, what what made you what made you use this example of uh, dental health? I'm curious.
1: It's really interesting. It's it's such an accessible example, right? We we are in a society that's obsessed with measuring value, okay. And this was, and you you might have seen that in the preface, right? When I mentioned how I got started with this work, at some point I realized I didn't know what value meant. And, and that is when I started asking these questions, which apparently have not been asked before in our discipline. So, and, and it's a juicy thing. It's a wonderful thing, by the way. It's, a, it's great when you find a new question. The whole point of research is not to find answers, but to find great questions. So that's the hallmark of uh, you know, research that's meaningful. And, and to me, this is very a very meaningful question. What is of value? It's a, it's a question to be lived. So when you quickly say, oh, I want value metrics, I uh, I want measures of value. Okay, well, that assumes that you know what is of value. And I am challenging the fundamental notion that measuring value is a useful exercise. I'm instead saying that we human beings have a very rich apparatus, which knows how to create value. And metrics help us when we are creating that value, as opposed to measuring it. So if I was measuring value, you are absolutely right. I would need to understand all these nuances of context. And by the time I'm done, I'm drowning in complexity. <laughs> I was like, okay, how do you take, let's say, a dissertation on dental health and make it accessible to everyday human beings? Well, there is nothing we have found which is more powerful than, than that construct of brush twice a day. Toothpaste right? <laughs> piss and all that other stuff comes later. Sure, but if you can follow that dictum, you are actually going to create dental health, whether or not you know how to measure dental health. And that's what's more important.
0: Mm. Right, and and, and it goes into uh, your first uh, aphorism, or the first two, where it says, use metrics not to measure value, but to drive value-creating behavior. And then the second one says, what truly counts is not measurable. What is measurable does not truly count. Let's test this a bit. You go on to say, I check my weight every day and care about it. As a measurable metric, weight can give me important information about an immeasurable value, my health. And even more significantly, it can be a driver of a change in my behavior. For example, if the metric of my weight indicated to me that it was important to lose some, it might drive me into adopting a healthier diet and exercising more. But of course, we know that when it comes to weight, um, <laughs> it's far you know, it, it, again, it, it's kind of like it gets more complex a little later on as well. Um, so it really determines like what is that value. Like for example, if we're talking about BMI, um, according to BMI, uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson is morbidly obese um although <laughs> I, I mean <laughs> uh, he's morbidly obese although just looking at a picture of him nobody would say that he's morbidly obese so it really <laughs> so it really is not so much about the metric itself sometimes but about taking in all of the information to drive that value creating behavior um. uh, You know, in your your next aphorism, out, out it says good metrics are those that are clear, and that that's very interesting too because it it's almost like someone who again wants to start a business, and you say business is service. Okay. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean to me? What the the self? How do I determine that service? What what are my values? Let me look at other people that have used uh, business as a service. But then you have all this information. How do I sort through that? You can get you get kind of overwhelmed <laughs> by it. So how do you how do you parse through all the information?
1: Well, so there's one more aphorism, right? Right after that. You, you've got good metrics that are clear and then useful metrics are those that drive value creating behavior. And, and these are quite different. So you could have a good metric, which is really clear, but it's thoroughly useless. It doesn't drive any value creating behavior. And in the next chapter, we, we get into deeper distinctions on that in the context of business. But, but this is starting to question the foundations of our relationship with metrics. So clarity is, is definitely an important value that hey, if the metric is unclear, <laughs> it's not going to help the conversation very much. But it's, that's not sufficient, right? It, that doesn't make it useful necessarily. So we have to think about what makes what makes a metric useful to us. and you I suspect we will find we've never asked ourselves that question. So so engaging with that question is, is actually more important than giving me giving answers to that I, because I find people are repositories of wisdom, each each one of us. So if you were to reflect on that question, you might find, hey, these things have been really useful to me, but not for the reason one might think. They're not measures of value. It's because they drive something that creates value. That's the link that I am posing you might find if you were to inquire into it. That's the, that's the essence of it in my view.
0: And that, that is very important, um, especially for everyone that is listening. You know, they're, they're trying to wrap their mind around all the information that they may have to gather. Um, but in the end, uh, on fifth, page 55, it says, in summary, metrics have fundamentally, ch- fundamentally changed how we relate to the world around us by driving our everyday behavior. They're only useful to us When they drive behavior towards something we value, this conceptual clarity creates an opening for us. Every time we are offered a metric, we can see it as an invitation to reflect on something more numinous. What do we value? Only then we'll be able to answer if the metric is helping drive action toward that value. So that is one of the key components of this chapter, uh, I feel personally. Uh, For example, there may be a big business that even though you may go to them for advice, you may ask them what did they do to become so successful on a national or even a global scale that may not be in line with what you value. For example, you may want to create a local department store and you know much more about the local landscape than that big business would. So even though they, the, the big business was, you could say on some level more successful or bigger or whatever, in the end, you you may have way different values that you find important and you may even find more success on the local landscape than that big business would because you understand, um, the area. You understand that your values are different. You know of the way to reach those customers in a way that the big business could not. Um, And so it's very important to determine on an individual level what your values are. So it also goes down to the bottom of page 55. It says, profit is useful because it drives some useful value-creating behavior, such as being a better steward of our resources. As also respecting our customers and truly caring about addressing their needs, so they see our sustenance as their own self-interest. But it is not, and can never be, an end in itself, because it is a metric, and all metrics are in service of driving behavior. As simple as that. So I, th- I think I think uh, I think that was a very clear way of uh, breaking it all down because in the beginning of the chapter someone might be like, oh my goodness this is, this is too much to conceptualize, but in the end uh, you simplified it, kind of brought it down to uh, counting <laughs> <In a way. laughs> <laughs> That was the promise yeah. Right? yep, yep. Promise <laughs> um, um, And so at the top of 56 it says, when people say they're working solely for profit, I try a little test I offer them the following hypothetical deal. Every year you will receive a paycheck that will cover all your needs, provided that you do not work on anything you consider meaningful for even a single day, year after year. It is quite likely that you will find what I found. Most thoughtful people would not accept such a deal. Where did did this test come from?
1: Well, I think it came from... A lot of people who would say things, who would short sell themselves, and and that's the beauty of this work, you know. That I'm not preaching here. I'm discovering what's already there in people, and I find that people have been let down by the intellectual frameworks they have been given in school. So so people will often come and say, you know, I haven't seen these years, and you'll see them in, in in a later chapter. I have no values. Well, how'd you figure? Well, I'm running a business. That's why I felt I have no values. Like, okay, just just look at that pernicious myth that if just because you're working in a business, you have no values. And in fact, though, so I, I want to challenge the, the ground truth of that, that I'm saying, no, the very fact that you're working in a business requires you to have values. <laughs> okay. Because, and you'll see those quotes coming in a little later. There's no point in being a business if, if you don't have any purpose, if you don't have any values that you want to express. So so I wanted a way to challenge people instead of telling them this and make them think, right? And so this is a test for everybody that, yeah, you know, everybody wants a good vacation, but given how hard we work and, and many people I know, you give them the best vacation in the world, one day, two days, three days. And then they just go, you know, very get very fidgety. It's like, I want to build something. I want to do something. No, 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 you have to be in this resort forever. Then it starts becoming a torture. It's like, no, get me out of here. I, I got a whole bunch of things I want to do. And and that's the energy that most people tend to have, right? They are doing something with their life they, that, that they find meaningful. That's why they're showing up to their jobs. It's, it's not so much the paycheck that they thought it would be, right? It's 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 much more. In fact, most people will tell you that maybe if you've never made a paycheck, getting that first paycheck is like wow, it's amazing. But then the second month, oh, you've forgotten about it. And third month, you definitely have forgotten about it. Now you're focusing on the work, and 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 that's how it tends to be for most people. So so when we say that oh, I'm just doing this for profits, you just short sold yourself. No, you're not. Just think about your actions. They don't support the theory that you're doing it for profits. There are a lot of things we do. It makes no sense, you know, if the goal is only just profit. You know, we work very hard and take care of each other. These are things that connect to who we are.
0: Right. Um, Yeah. Because even a little bit down, you say uh, buying into a business's sole purpose as shareholder value creation. Is like saying that the sole purpose of my life is to make my bankers happy, which I, I don't think anybody would say that. Um, and then a little bit further down, this is page fifty-six. Yes, we must pay back what is owed to our bankers, but that is a statement of obligation, not a state of being. Like, I don't think any. I don't think anyone would. My sole purpose in life is to make the shareholders happy. Um, you know, may, maybe there's one. I don't know, but. <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe, maybe people say it
1: <laughs> people say it all the time right but but if you test right. it, they're like, wait a second, that sounds silly right That's not my reason for existence. I'm, I'm grateful they they lent me money and and I want them to do well because of that faith, that trust in us. So that's a different that's a noble intention. but they are betting on some core value proposition that you brought to the table. What was that value proposition? You know, in one generation, it was like, "Oh, my money will multiply." Okay, that could have been a motivation for some people. Nowadays, you'll find it's more around value creation. It's like you want the world to be a better place, and I'm putting my money towards supporting that in some way because I believe these folks are doing something in that direction. And it's great if that money can multiply doing good. That tends to be the general motivation of most investors these days. So so I, I feel like there's a lot of diversity of motivation, but it bends towards doing good in the world. That's been my observation.
0: Mm. Yes, and then and, and getting further into that joy, um, on page 58, uh says, Noble laureate poet Rabindranath Tagore recognizes the heaviness of service in a famous quote attributed to him. I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. And a little further down, as you start to get into the poem, it is the word I that represents our limited ego. It is the I that dreamt up joy. It is the I that experienced the reality of the world where service is needed. And it is the eye that had to find a way to use its unique conditioning to go beyond the bounds to touch another. And in so doing, touch life itself through the feeling of joy. And so it really goes back to this self. And regardless of the external world that is around us, with business, you know, we're we're part of a company, for example, and this kind of goes back to the plastics company. You might be part of that plastics company. Um, And you might think that well it's this whole huge company there's all these other people like there is nothing that I can do. However, to find however they were able to find value and meaning and joy by being of service to others. They were able to find value within themselves and collectively by listening to one another uh, determine the values that will define the company. So this is what. This is very interesting. Why did, why did you choose this uh this poem?
1: I think it 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 elaborates on the starting poem of the chapter because if you think about it, right, service is a very heavy word. I, I don't like its roots. I think it comes somewhere here in this chapter that the word service comes from the Latin servitium, which means slave, being a slave, right? And that's not a good feeling like well, I'm not a slave to anyone in fact i want to come from a space of freedom and that space of freedom can only be recognized if it's coming with joy that i choose i choose to do this because it gives me great joy and and so my proposal is a little bit radical even though it seems like a play on words it's really serious it's like hey if in, instead of framing this as serving and service and heavy stuff no lighten up come with a space of joy come with that feeling of joy and whatever you do i believe it will serve others if you're coming from that space of creative joy and if you're coming to a creative joy spirit right it's it's not going to be heavy it's going to be fun and even when you're you're slogging away at the at the edge of your physical limits you will still find it fulfilling you'll find that it's meaningful that it's worth something that you you took that extra effort. Your river of generosity overflowed. And and that's a different way of being, that's a different way of working. That's that's what I want to tap into. And that's what this poem opens up for me, Tagore's poem. That hey, when you act, you find that service is not heavy, it's actually very joyful. So I want I want to explore that space, I want to feel that.
0: Hmm. And it kind of goes back to uh, uh, that quote, perception is reality. And it's almost like you're inviting um, others to change their perception. It, you know, on the bottom of page 58, it says, imagine a flute player who is not willing to accept the fluteness of the music a flute produces <laughs> and instead laments that the flute does not sound like a saxophone. That that flute player will never make great flute music. We are that flute player. The sound of the saxophone is the narrow agenda that we are chasing that is not authentic to the unique sound of the instrument we have at our disposal, our own conditioned selves. Our joyful service can only be unlocked when we accept our fluteness, which is our unique conditioning, and use it to produce the unique music of our heart. I... I love that because it makes me think of life as well. Um, you know, even we're all dealt certain cards. We don't get to determine, uh, who our parents are, where we grow up, uh, many different things. And it's like, you know, we can accept the cards that we were dealt and just be like, Oh, I don't like this. I don't like this. I'm just, you know, it's kind of the equivalent of a job. Oh, I don't like this job, but I have to stay at this job. I have to keep on working. I can't really think about changing anything. I can't change anything. However, another perception is, you know, I I can change things or I will work with the, the cards that I'm dealt based on the hand that I have. How can I play this? Um, So I I really, I really like that, especially since it's a nice parallel uh, between business and life itself. So what, what, uh, what made you think of, uh, were there any other examples besides like flute players that you were considering, uh, putting in this book? I'm, I'm curious.
1: I think, I think you nailed it, right? Everybody's conditioned differently. And when you understand that, then you start to do something artful with it. It's, it's sort of at the beginning in the preface where I talked about the patterns of this book, right? You have to fully accept the exact situation you're in or the, or the limitations you are working under in order to create art. You can't create art by going out of the canvas, right? Imagine imagine an artist. Imagine Leonardo da Vinci saying, ah, this canvas No, it's not big enough for me. I want to paint in the air. Well, you can try, but no one can see it, right? So, So the idea of art is it's got to have certain rules. Otherwise, it cannot be art. It's got to have these rules which bound what you're doing. And through those boundaries, you get your opportunity to touch the boundless. So when a dancer is dancing, if it's any classical dance form that you can recognize, You recognize it precisely because they're following a very narrow set of rules. But that's not why you're inspired by it. You're inspired because using those narrow rules, they leaped into something that those rules do not contain. They touched your heart. And that's what the game is about. Art is about touching the heart. And you do that by transcending the rules. Not by breaking the rules, but by following the rules and using it to leap out of the rules. It's a very important
0: distinction. Mm. And it says, yes, yes. And it says how um, the aphorism 1.5, the purpose of business is to be a canvas for our unique service. So we're getting further along here. It's also about looking at the self as well, determining that value and then using it to create something beautiful. That's great, uh, it, it says on bottom of fifty nine if our volition to serve is not coming out in our pr- present context, it means we have to work hard at changing our context. The canvas also has limitations of time and space, so there is a meeting ground between our artwork and the space a canvas provides for our life's art to land, we need to p- paint on our available canvas, not someone else's canvas, and not outside the canvas. This is great because it makes me think of legacy again. Uh, it makes Mm. me think of how, uh, you know, even the people that have accomplished great things today that have these huge businesses that are international, you know, whatever's, um, they oftentimes also had humble beginnings. They had a set of cards that they were dealt. They had uh, metrics that they had to sort through and determine their own value. And by having an understanding of the cards that they were dealt, the canvas that is before them, they were able to paint something beautiful. And, I, and, and it, it also brings me back to uh, a quote that, uh, you know, I came across before um, where it says that we all have 24 hours. It, it kind of like brings back the humility of humanity that even even those people that have accomplished great things we still are bound by time it's kind of like that canvas like we're still bound by certain rules no matter how much we want to think that we are stuck in a certain way of thinking or we can't make a change out of our situation um
1: that that's right i I just want to harp on that that Sometimes people in, in business schools, you'll hear this language that constraints are needed, creative constraints. But I don't like the word constraints to begin with, right? Because it, by definition, traps you. Instead, I prefer the metaphor of an artist's palette. The artist, when they're painting, they don't look at the paintbrush and the paint and the canvas as constraints. If they did, they wouldn't even get started, right? Right. And that's a very different metaphor. Why, why do we use the, the language of constraints to create our life's work instead? Why can't we think of it as our artist's paintbrush, the canvas, the, the, the palette? That's, that's what we have at our disposal, right? Or if you want the music metaphor, this is our flute or our saxophone or whatever it is. It's our instrument. It's not our constraint. It is the vehicle for our creation. That's a very powerful frame shift,
0: yeah, it's almost like a whole different way of thinking I, I i remember um I remember when I was in high school um i don't I don't remember the name of the article, but uh I remember being in high school uh and I was very focused on okay, I need to go to college, I need to you know get this uh degree, then I need to get this job. I had like a certain very narrow way of thinking. And then I came across this article and it was talking about like, like the mindset of the wealthy. And I went into it. (laughs) I went into it like probably most people would like, Oh, I want to be wealthy. Like that's the, that's the narrow agenda. However, once I was starting to read the article, it it kind of changed my mindset because one line said that I'll never forget. uh, It said, um, we don't get jobs. We make them. Mm. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's interesting because it's, it's, it's almost like it's from the very beginning, it's changing the mindset. It's going more toward the self. It's more saying, Okay, if I'm making a job, that's a completely different mindset than I'm going to get a job. Getting a job means I'm putting myself in this certain uh, canvas that someone else has had uh, has for me. For example, for me making a job, it's like what art am I going to create? You know, what what values do I have that I want to bring into the world so that someone else will fill that space? you know, that, that's a whole different mindset. And I, I think beautiful. that, yeah. yeah. And I feel like it it, it kind of goes um, into what you're saying a little later with uh, Henry Ford uh, on page 60. It says, Henry Ford, regarded by most as the father of American business, said, business must be run at a profit, else it will die. But when anyone tries to run a business solely for profit, then the business must die as well for it is no longer for it no longer has a reason for existence. And then Walt Disney, you say, puts it even better. I don't make movies to make money. I make money to make more movies. It all goes back to what is that end result? What are you trying to, what is valuable to you? That, that's and
1: and it connects it connects to that opening question, right? Is is service a means or an end? And if it is an end, then money is sanctified. Making money is important because it is a powerful, powerful source of energy in order to be able to serve. But if it is the other way around, it becomes very hollow. It's like, okay, what are you going to do with all this money? Now that you have it, and and you will find people struggle with that, and they have a lot of money and no purpose. Routinely, I find uh, people's mental health uh, is is challenged. You know, it's like if we don't have that satisfaction of, of doing something meaningful, we are we are poor in in a way that is extremely important. Let me put it that way.
0: Right, and and I think I think like um, your values. If you're not meeting them, also become manifest in what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, if you If your mindset is not where it should be, you could say. Um, as a writer, I've heard I've heard authors say that the reader can tell when you're writing a story for money and when you're mm-hmm. writing uh, you know, out of a passion which is very interesting to me because, you know, how would they know? But, hmm. <laughs> you know, hmm. like but, there, but there's obviously something there that is letting the reader know that, hmm, this person's trying to just cash it in, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it kind of goes to our anti-hero story a little bit. Even though I've heard this many times, I don't know why it hit me so hard where it says uh, in the beginning, uh, the purpose of our business is really to make money. My friend, who I will call Scott, said this to me with a deadpan expression. I knew that Scott loved his work. He was intellectually inclined, passionate about probability theory and business economics, and a great consultant due to his attitude of service. I decided to challenge him and said, really? Wow, you chose the worst business you could have to make money. <laughs> I love it. Um, and it gets further into the story, basically talking about a value, um, challenging his values, uh, challenging um, his expression where it says the purpose of our business is really to make money. And I think part of the reason why the opening hit me so hard is because we just went through this entire chapter, and you know, if you know what we've learned through uh, chapter zero in the preface. Basically reorienting the way that we look at business, the way we look at uh, how businesses should be run. And so all of a sudden you hear someone like Scott saying like, oh, it's all about the money. And it's like, oh no, 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 (laughs) That's not, that's not how it is at all. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about your friend Scott here? (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, this is, uh, well, he'll remain anonymous But of uh, course, very, very inspiring person and very uh, intellectually capable and yet a victim of uh, our intellectual frameworks that have let him down to believe that business is about making money. And this is routinely so. Extremely talented people in society, every one of us has been a victim of poor intellectual frameworks that have been handed down to us. So I'm, I'm really... Hacking away at those roots those foundational elements that we've all taken for granted and not questioned. and I'm saying no, this actually didn't come from anywhere. No one talks about this and if they do, they're highly uh, they're they, I wouldn't even say misinformed they, they're short selling themselves. Maybe it's it's kind of hard to be misinformed about yourself, but I guess it, I guess that's what it is. You yourself don't act in ways that that show that you're all about money. Then why would you say that? <laughs> and it, it's it's like a it's like a virus that has afflicted us because somebody said it, we copied that person, and now we're saying it, and other people copy us. Can we stop? Can we say <laughs> we will only say things that are true <laughs> in our experience? Then then this this mythology will end right there. Like this is not a useful thing to be saying. Right? And and at the end of it, you can see that uh, at the end of the story that. Scott agreed. You know, he felt uplifted because I wasn't berating him; I was actually amplifying him, his values. Right? It's like you, to stop short selling yourself. You've got a, a pot of gold with you. Why are you disregarding that? That gold means something. And let's start there. Right? Everybody has this pot of gold. It's the values they stand for, and that you know, and you know, if he's st- for one for a moment, right? I guess only the economists uh, judge us or evaluate human beings as rational. But if you're not an economist, we have no trouble agreeing that human beings are not rational animals. Okay, that's why we need mathematics. That's why we need decision analysis, disciplines like this to keep your, keep our thinking straight. But but it, there's some beauty and poetry to that. That if we consider all of our all, all of humanity, all of us as insane in very particular ways. What are you insane about? What are you insanely in love with that you're going to give your life energy to your passion to, and let's start there. And let's honor that. And let's construct sensible structures that allow you to continue that insanity. And and I mean it in a good way, of course, I don't want, you know, insanely destructive things around. I want insanely constructive things, people who care for others, in ways that we didn't think was even possible that's what it really is about that we care so much about quality that makes the person receiving it emotional that wow that's a new standard and and this is this is not something imaginary there are people everywhere around you if you just look everybody cares about something beyond any rational explanation and if you could make your living around those things and be supported how would that look, right? What would that look like?
0: Exactly. And, and I think that everyone essentially wants to achieve that. They may not know how, but again, we're going back to counting. We're going back to first principles. And hopefully that uh, others that read this book and, and, and really do the work um, on themselves and determining their values uh, that they will find that balance and they will find out what their values are so that they can influence their life around them. Um, so that's excellent. Um, is said at the end, what is a way of relating to business that is different from feeding ourselves as fuel into a machine? Growth for its own sake is no longer appealing. How do we connect to a model of growth that nourishes us? It is time to examine a different metaphor for business. And um, this goes into our questions for reflection. And uh, just like last time, I want to read those uh, so people can hear them and think about them. And then as they read the book, they can also go back to them and keep dwelling. <laughs> uh, it says uh, Number one, what did this chapter open up for you? Number two, What does serving with your uniqueness mean to you? Number three, what would business look like if it were a canvas for you to serve with your uniqueness? And number four, when is service light and joyful for you? And those were the questions of reflection. Before we close out chapter one, is there anything else that you would like to say?
1: No, this was a great conversation. Yes, and I, I just say that you know if you're working in a nonprofit, nonprofit is a particular kind of business that has a particular tax status. So this applies to both for profits and nonprofits. Any organizations is how I want the word business to be interpreted.
0: Excellent. That's a good point, and I'm sure we'll we'll get more into that as we move forward as well. Um, Please join us next time for chapter two, which is called Input, Output, and Numinous Metrics. Thank you very much for joining us for this conversation.